Well, good morning, church. I am honored of the Lord for again this opportunity to stand before you behind this sacred desk uh, to declare as of the oracles of God. And every opportunity I have to do so, I often make this statement not so much for you, but for myself as a reminder that not just myself, but everyone who stands in this light, there's coming a great and glorious day where we will have to give an account for how we have managed this stewardship. And so it is my desire and prayer this morning that as I attempt to embark upon such a rich passage of Scripture that the Lord's and His special grace would be with me to guide my heart and my mind and that he would allow me to speak accurately according to his eternal truth. Today we will continue our exposition through the book of Luke, and we will be in Luke chapter number 9, verses 28 through 36, as we look at the section that deals with the transfiguration of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as an outward sign to me, when you find your place in your copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask that you would rest upon your feet. As we read our text in honor of God's Word, then we will make our prayer, and then we will dive into our message for this morning. Luke chapter number 9, starting at verse number 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James, and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let us make our prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus, Lord, you have been so gracious to us to grant us another day of life. You have so worked in our hearts and in our lives and to bring us 
to this gathered place on this Lord's day. God, you have been extremely gracious to us to have allowed all things that have been wrought in our midst thus far to have happened by your grace, and you have brought us to the most preeminent part of our gathering, the time where we were here from heaven. And as it has been said that when a preacher opens the Word of God, it is literally as if God is opening his mouth, and as a man stands to proclaim of your eternal truths, it is not so much what God has said, but it is what God is saying. So God, it is my prayer this morning, praying for these, your people, that God, you would manifest your grace and your love to them, um, that you would open up their, the eyes of their understanding and grant them ears that they may hear, keeping them free from distraction. And God, I come before you myself as the preacher, depending solely upon your spirit, your grace, that you would carry me along, making my tongue as the pen of the ready writer, guiding my thoughts and my words, that only uh, that which I speak be rooted in the truth of your gospel, and that Christ may be high and lifted in the text today. And God, is my prayer that as you allow these things to take place for your glory, as we depart from this place, that no one would walk away saying how great the sermon was or how great Zion spoke, but that collectively we may all collectively say how beautiful and how wondrous Jesus Christ is. Do it for your glory now, and it will manifest for our joy. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. The transfiguration of Jesus. As we come to our text this morning, I am reminded of a blockbuster movie released in 1988 starring Eddie Murphy entitled Coming to America, in which he plays a character by the name of Akeem. Akeem is a wealthy African prince who wants for nothing other than a wife who will love him in spite of his title and despite the fact that he is a prince. In his African culture, arranged marriages was the way of the day. But in rebellion to that cultural tradition, Akeem flees to America in order to find his own bride. So he comes to America disguised as a foreign exchange student, and despite the fact that he is of royalty, he condescends to low estate, lives in an old rundown New York apartment, and chooses to work at a fast food restaurant. For what reason? All for the purpose of trying to do his best to conceal his true identity. However, despite the best of his efforts, there were times throughout the movie when his cover was almost blown. For instance, the time when he attended a New York Knicks basketball game and while he was standing in line getting ready to use the restroom, he was recognized by one of his countrymen who had came to the States before him 
And literally, as the man recognized him, he set his tray down containing his beverages and his food and fell to his knees and began to pay homage to Akeem. All the time in the movie, uh, when he was able to stop an armed robbery that was happening at the Madow's fast food restaurant where he worked. Um, having been trained as a warrior in the jungles of Africa, having wrestled lions and tigers, he was able to subdue this armed gunman using nothing more than a mop stick. Or at the time when he was walking down the street, and he finds two homeless men and he gives them a bag filled with money, apparently living off of a mere fast food restaurant salary. Fast forwarding to the end of the movie, after Akeem has found his bride and they are wedded in holy matrimony in a kingdom called Zamunda, where Akeem was prince and heir to the royal throne, it was there that who he truly was was fully revealed for all to see, especially Lisa, his chosen bride, prayed by Cherie Headley. Now you ask, what does that have to do with our sermon text this morning? Well, nothing to be exact. Other than a measly attempt to try to draw some parallels in order for us to understand something more glorious about our Lord. See, if you remember, the perplexing question that we have been dealing with over the last few weeks is this question of who is this Jesus? Who is this man that speaks to the winds and the waves and they immediately obey him? Who is this man that is able to deliver the madman of Gadara, who was possessed with the legion of demons, and bring about healing and soundness of mind to this man? Who is this man that simply by touching his garment, a woman who suffered with a bleeding condition for several years, had spent all of her money and no physician could do anything to help her, but simply by touching the hem of this man's garment, she is healed instantly. Who is this man, Jesus, that is able to heal Jairus' only daughter who is sick unto death? Who is this man that is able to take a two-piece fish dinner, two fish and five loaves of bread, and feed over 5,000 men, not including women and children. Who is he? Who is he? Who is he? Well, Peter tells us who he is in verse number 20 of chapter number 9. He declares that he is the Christ of God. And Jesus affirms the rightness of his response by saying in Matthew's account, Matthew chapter number 16, verse 16, blessed art thou, Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, he says, but my Father which is in heaven. Which again, every time I read this passage, my mind always says to myself, we must always remember that according to the truth of Scripture, that if any man or any woman is to truly know who Christ Jesus is, it requires divine intervention. 
It requires revelation from on high. It requires the Father to literally exegete Jesus unto us. In verses 23 through 26, excuse me, Jesus gives a warning to all those who would come after him, saying that in order to truly follow him, it requires denial of self and ultimately death to self. In other words, for both Christ and the Christian, there is a via dolorosa, a way, a road paved with suffering. For the songwriter asked the question, should Jesus bear his cross alone and all the world go free? The answer came back, no, for there is a cross for everyone, and yes indeed, there is a cross for me. Now you're right there in Luke chapter number 9 verse 28, I want you to allow your eyes to scroll up just one verse. And it's here in verse number 27 where I want to dive in and use sort of as a launch pad to spring us into our message for today. Notice what the Word of God says in verse number 27 of chapter number 9. Here the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking. He says, but I tell you truly that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. What did Jesus mean by this statement? Well, it seems most plausible that he was not referring to his second coming as it is described in Matthew chapter number 24, verse 30, when all will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. But this statement was a reference to his transfiguration, the event that would happen roughly eight days later. In verses 28 and 29, I want you to notice major point number one to this message. I want you to notice the compelling context. Notice he says, now about eight days after these these sayings, he took with him Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Major point number one, I want you to notice the compelling context. Now the context here is compelling for several reasons. Number one, because it involved privileged people. Peter, John, and James. Now these three disciples of the Lord uh, were a part of what we might call the inner circle of the Lord Jesus Christ. They often accompanied the Lord uh, when others didn't. If you pay attention to the gospel accounts, it is these same three who accompanied the Lord when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and they were able to witness the agonizing reality of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus when the Bible says that he sweated literally sweat drops as of blood. It was these same three that accompanying him in just a few verses before this, when he was uh, asked to uh, heal Jairus' daughter who was sick unto death, it is these same three who was permitted to go with him on the top of the mountain. And what we may call uh, these particular three in the midst of all of the rest of the disciples is these three were, as we would say, first among equals. All of these disciples uh, chosen by the Lord was loved and chosen by the Lord equally, but functionally these three 
had a specific role. Peter, as we know, after the day of Pentecost, was that leading voice, that leading one that sort of helped to forge the church forward. It was John that the Bible literally describes as being that beloved or that affectionate disciple who literally uh, is pictured in, in, in the Scripture as being that one who literally at times would lay his head upon the breast or the bosom of our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus, that beloved, affectionate disciple. And James was the one to first give his blood in testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ. This context involves privileged people, but not just privileged people, it also involves personal prayer. Notice that the Scripture clearly states that the reason Jesus went up on the mountain was for the purpose of communing with the Father through prayer. This was the pattern of Christ's life, a normal rhythm uh, for the way that our Lord lived His life, a tearing away of the dread, a tearing away from the duty and the demands of this life for the sake of personal prayer time with His Father. And if I could be honest, even in my preparation of this message, when I got to this specific place in the text, I said, oh me. You know, the preacher has been called to preach a perfect gospel and to preach it faithfully, while at times being able to look at themselves and if they are honest, realize that there is so much still left yet warning in them. And apart from the merit of Christ that gives us the right to stand behind this sacred destiny to try by the grace of God to declare anything of the Lord, it is only based upon that right merit granted to us in Christ, because if it was based on our own, we would not be worthy, and we would in some way be some of the biggest hypocrites on this side of eternity. He went for the purpose of praying. This context doesn't just involve privileged people and personal prayer, but number three, it also involved perceptible power. The Bible says, as he prayed, the appearance of Jesus' face was altered. Don't miss that. Please do not miss the gravity of that statement. As he prayed, he was changed. The power of God was present and it was seen. I believe the implications here are the transfiguration was the Father's answer to Jesus' prayer. And while we don't know the conversation between Jesus and His Father, it seems plausible that possibly Jesus' desire and His prayer put forth to the Father was to grant Peter, John, and James just a glimpse a trail or a preview, so to speak, of His coming future glory. To conclude, this wouldn't be far-fetched from what the Bible teaches us, right? If you remember over there in John chapter number 17, verse 24, in that high priestly prayer, the Lord Jesus Christ prays similarly, right? He says, after uh, thanking the Father for all that He had given to Him, and He says, Lord, all that You've given to me, I have lost none of them. And the sheep would need something to hold on to, to anchor them. And perhaps the Lord used this powerful display to accomplish this end in them. Now when it says his face was altered, it is the Greek word heteros, 
which literally means he changed in form. I believe this was to serve as a reminder of his glory before his incarnation and to serve as a prelude and a preview of his future exaltation and glory. The compelling context. But in verse number 30 to 32, I want you to notice major point number two. I want you to notice the climactic conversation. Notice verse 32 through 30 through 32. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure when he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. The climactic conversation. Now the Bible says that while this dazzling display was occurring, suddenly two men appeared. Two of the most preeminent and prominent figures in Jewish history. These men were Moses and Elijah. Moses stands as the representative of all those who died in faith. Moses died according to Deuteronomy chapter number 34, verses 5 and 8, and the Bible says that he received a special burial, for God was the one that buried him. No one knows where Moses' body is, but Elijah, as you know, according to 2 Kings, did not die but was carried to heaven in a whirlwind. And so Elijah stands as the representative of all those who will not die, but shall be caught up and received by Christ at his glorious appearing. Now, who they are, are and what they represent is another sermon entirely. But what is most important here is this, is that they are here on the mountain and they are talking with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the reason I refer to this conversation uh, as being uh, climactic in nature is because of the A clause of verse 31. Look at verse 31, the A clause. The Bible says, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. The word departure here is the Greek word exodus, which refers to Jesus' future death, his resurrection and ascension. So in Jesus' life, his life and his ministry, hear me people, is all building to this end. All that Jesus lived and did in his 30 and three years on this side of eternity is all climaxing and culminating ultimately at Calvary and could, and it could be, that in some way the Father used these two men to encourage and minister to our Lord in his humanity, similarly to how the Father sent an angel in the Garden of Gethsemane as our Lord agonized before he went to the cross. Um, many commentators, you know, speak so if so facto about such truths. Is this the case? I don't know, right? Because the Bible tells us in Corinthians 13, 12, that we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. We know in part, we learn in part, but in that time when we see him, the Bible says we will know 
even as we are known. But not just a compelling context, or climactic conversation. I want you to notice major point number three is found in verse 33. I want you to notice the carnal consideration. The carnal consideration. Notice verse 33. And as the men were parting from him, speaking of Moses and Elijah, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Major point number three, the carnal consideration. Now, to Peter's defense, in light of the fact that he has just witnessed Jesus in his full glory, in some sense. He has just witnessed the majesty of our Lord, so much to the point that Jesus' physical form was altered. At the same time, he also has just witnessed the appearing of two of the most prominent historical Jewish figures in Jewish antiquity, speaking to Jesus on the mountain. I can only imagine how excited and overwhelming this event must have been. But despite his enthusiasm, and despite his excitement, and his sincere intent, might I tell you that what he said was sincerely wrong. And his assertion was manifested to be wrong in those last four words, not knowing what he said. I said that his response was carnal because it was not inspired by the Spirit or not in line with the Spirit, of which the Spirit and the Word of God always agree. So in light of Peter's carnal consideration, the Bible makes clear that the truth of the Spirit and the Word always agrees. So in saying that he was out of step with the Spirit, is also to say that he was out of step with the Word, which is ultimately the will of God. And this carnal consideration is now addressed in major point number four, found in verse 34 and 35. I want you to notice the convicting contradiction. Notice verse 34 and 35. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overwhelmed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him, the convicting contradiction. At the very moment he was saying these things, he was immediately contradicted, negated, confronted, interrupted, and opposed by heaven regarding the things that he spoke. Now question, what is the father doing in rebuking Peter? Is he trying to belittle Peter and put Peter down? No, I don't believe so. He's not trying to put Peter down, but essentially I believe that what he's attempting to do is to lift Christ up. In other words, it is all about Jesus Christ. 
The Father vindicates Christ and shows the glory and supremacy of Christ by speaking on his behalf. The Father vindicates Christ as the only begotten, only unique, only chosen, beloved, eternal Son of God by bestowing unique honor, glory upon him over all, even above two of the most beloved and respected Jewish figures in Jewish antiquity. Simply put, there is no one, I mean no one, that is on par with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in major point number one, four, we see the convicting contradiction as a means of exalting Christ in light of Peter's carnal consideration. Which brings us to our last and final point, major point number five, which is found in verse number 36. I want you to notice the convincing conclusion. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. And just like that, suddenly everything returned to normal. And the fact that Jesus was left alone after the Father had spoken adds a final conclusion to what the Father had manifested. Sort of like after saying what you had to say, dropping the mic and exiting the stage. The Father spoke from heaven. He declared that this is my one and only unique son, my chosen son. Hear ye him. And just like that, the two witnesses were gone. Christ was alone. And it was as if God the Father said what he said. And if so facto, settled it and dropped the mic. The compelling context. The climactic conversation, the carnal consideration, and the convicting contradiction ending in this convincing reality. You see, the baby born in Bethlehem conceived of the Holy Ghost and born of a virgin was indeed God. It is he who invaded our world coming from glory in order to fulfill all righteousness by accomplishing his Father's will in redeeming us. And though he was himself God, thought it not robbery to maintain his equality with God, but willingly laid down his prerogative as God by emptying himself and taking on the form of a servant. He was God incognito, the fullness of deity dwelling in a body. And as one theologian puts it, the transfiguration of Jesus confirms that despite having the outward appearance of a mere man, Jesus of Nazareth is, in his nature and essence, God, deity dressed in a body. May this reality of Christ being truly God, fully God and fully man, encourage our hearts today. May this message draw us closer and deepen our affections 
for the Lord as we consider who this man Jesus is. Perhaps today you have heard the gospel in a way that you've never heard it. And perhaps you have never trusted in Christ. My prayer to you today is that the Lord possibly would use this message to grant you faith and sight that you may see your need for Christ and respond accordingly to the gospel, which is the power of God into salvation. But perhaps you're saved in this place today. And as we move from faith to faith and from glory to glory, and as we grow in our grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, may our hearts be enriched and inflamed afresh. May our affections be deepened for the Lord that we may continue to press toward that mark of the high calling of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let us turn our hearts to prayer. Heavenly Father, in Jesus' name, Lord, we thank you for your word. And Lord, my prayer is that in these few scattered words, Lord, that you would take them and apply them to the hearts of your people like only you can do. God, to one it may be the gospel, according to Romans chapter number one, which is the power of God unto salvation. To everyone believeth, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. God, would you grant repentance and faith to the sinner? Would you draw sinners unto yourself that it may be for our joy and for the joy of the nations? But for us who name the name of Jesus Christ already, God, and have come to know you as Savior and Lord, God, would you continue to call us upward as it, as it pertains to the upward call? That, Lord, in obedience as we strive to live as according to how you have mandated us to live, that our lives will bring you glory, and before this dark and dying world, the very life that we live would make Christ and the gospel increasingly more attractive. It's these blessings and all other blessings that we ask in Jesus' matchless name. Amen.